Hello, everybody, and greetings from Moscow. I'm Tatiana Mitrova. It's really my great pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest today, Pavan Sukhdev, President WWF and CEO of the GIST Advisory, who is going to prove to us that nature has actually issue invoices and we can calculate them for her. Anton Huff, co-founder of Kairos and senior scholar Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy, who is going to show us what a powerful role advanced technology can play in serving the oil and gas industry's ability to manage its own methane emissions. Poppy Kalesi, Global Energy Director of the Environmental Defense Fund on the eve of the EU Green Deal, is going to talk to us about how important transparency and auditing are to establish the right conditions for business to integrate particular sustainability factors. And Vanessa Millerfels, Director of Energy Innovation and Impact at Microsoft, will give us a sense of how digitalization and artificial intelligence can benefit man's understanding of the nature. We all definitely agree that our industry should become sustainable. There is a big role for the governments to play, for example, with carbon pricing, but the responsibility of the industry itself is also huge. Our LEAF panel today will address sustainability in the oil and gas industry using the lens of measuring what matters. Oil and gas industry is being held to account on its sustainability performance for quite some time. But the problem is that our current sustainability measurement efforts are largely carried out to satisfy external stakeholders, and even then, very imperfectly to the detriment of the public policy makers, investors, and the industry itself. Slum flagship initiatives have emerged, but all would acknowledge that there is still a long way to go before businesses themselves are proactively developing and maturing the metrics they need in order to improve their sustainability performance. Uh, you probably remember management guru Peter Drucker is often quoted as saying that you can't manage what you can't measure. Drucker meant that you can't know whether or not you are successful unless success is defined and tracked. It is 100% applicable to the oil and gas industry. We have enormous amount of data, we love data, and we know how to work with it. But what we do not know is which exactly metrics should, be, uh, should we track to measure sustainability of our performance and how we are complying with the SDGs. We need some universal metrics which prove, uh, which provide objectivity, which can be comparable, and most importantly, which are fit for decision. This panel today uh, will look at how to measure and improve sustainability performance, its contribution to the sustainability development goals, and in particular, how to, to engage the internal stakeholders, the business decision makers in business administration, in operations, R&D, and commercial roles, so that they and their business can better enable development that is truly sustainable. Our four panelists are working at the cutting edge and will show us some of the way there. So, without spending too much time on the introduction, let's move to our first speaker, Pavan Sukhdev, President at WWF and CEO at GIST Advisory. So, Pavan, what's wrong with the current ESG rating methodologies and how could they be improved? 
Thank you, Tatiana, for uh, for your thoughtful introduction. And uh, I'll have to ask you to be imaginative as I describe charts and X and Y axes, but that's fine. Uh, we are all engineers. I'm an ex-physicist myself. Astrophysics was my line uh, before I, I went into banking and finance. And uh, I guess um, physicist by, by training, uh, banker by profession, um, and uh, an environmental economist by passion. And my work has been to demonstrate that the economics of nature matter. Just because something has a value but no price, it doesn't mean you can ignore it, either as a policymaker or as an administrator or as a businessman. Oh, wow, we seem to have slides. I can see something called measuring what matters for corporate sustainability. Um, um, so this is the just is my company, the one that I'm which I founded as a as a means of responding in a commercial manner to the challenge of sustainability metrics. To me, as Peter Drucker says, you cannot manage what you do not measure. We are not measuring sustainability, right? Today, there's so much talk about corporate sustainability. And yet, when you ask someone point blank, define corporate sustainability, I can tell you that it's really difficult to get an answer. So please ask me that question and I have an answer. To me, corporate sustainability is about measuring impacts in four dimensions. What are the four dimensions? They are the four capital dimensions. That is produced capital, financial capital. This is two sides of the same coin. You can buy manufactured goods and services. Don't go there yet. I just want to define sustainability before we move. <laughs> so corporate sustainability is you need to be positive plus on the axis of financial capital. You need to be positive on the axis of human capital, which is your employees' knowledge, skills, and health. So unless you can garner that, your employees are like a capital resource. In a sense, you have rented the employee, paying them a lease rental called salary and paying them maintenance called performance bonuses and so on. If they don't do well, you don't do well, right? You, you, if you want to do well in the marketplace, you begin with the workplace. So that is human capital. It's not yours. It's your employee's human capital. The third capital is natural capital. And whether it is dead natural capital, like oil and gas reserves, or whether it is living natural capital, the ecosystem services that maintain us all, provide us food, fuel, fiber, and everything that we know as, as life, we have to maintain them. And if we run out of them, then we have a problem. And that's a public good. Then there's social capital, which is the relationships, both the official and the unofficial. Official as in constitution, law and order, police, judicial system, taxation system, and so on. Unofficial as in trust, you know, respect, ability to be, live in communal harmony between Hindus and Muslims, for example. These are aspects of social capital. If you don't have social capital maintained in an economy, none of the other capitals can deliver the incomes which give them value. In economics, there's in finance, there's something called the capital asset pricing model. You can use that to price produced capital, human capital, natural capital, but you can't use that to, to value social capital because that's not a generator of income. But without social capital, it's the binding force, right? Uh, as an ex-physicist, I tell other physicists that think about it in, in terms of you know, quarks and gluons. You need the quarks, the three quarks, and then this is the gluon, basically. Think of it as particles. And then I tell them that, you know, think of the four capitals as aspects that have to be plus, 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 and plus, right? You can't really net off human capital and natural capital saying, oh, well, you know, I do so much good training and development of my people, so it's okay. I can do a bit of negative natural capital impacts. Not really. I mean, you may, but the point is, unless there's somebody else who's got the opposite situation, um, you will have a problem. If there's a thousand of you 
100,000 of you, it may be fine. The Earth's a very big place. But if there's a million of companies which have got minus, 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 plus, or indeed minus, minus, plus, plus, the things on which you are minus, the two axes of, of natural capital and social capital, which is typically where companies do have negative impacts, we will end up having such a massive overweight on negative impacts that you will have a global systemic problem. And there are two of them which we are facing right now. One is called inequity and poverty, and there's a lot of that. And the other one is called climate change, and there's a lot of that as well. So we have ignored performance metrics because why? Not because we don't know about the fact that you have to measure performance in four dimensions and not just one dimension, but because there is no accounting for externalities. There is a shareholder profit and loss. IFRS requires you to report it. It's reported every year or every quarter if you're an American company, but there is no IFRS for reporting on human capital, natural capital, social capital, and that's the problem. These are the areas of externalities. The value of externalities is massive, right? We are talking about the private sector, which is in any case, two thirds of the economy and jobs. So it is two thirds of impacts as well in terms of environmental impacts. Um, we are not at present measuring the impacts of the private sector. And therefore we have uncharted, unrecorded externalities. And therefore we are not managing what what needs to be measured what needs to be measured needs to be managed we are not measuring externalities and therefore we are not managing them and we are doing the exact opposite of the topic of this seminar which is measuring what matters externalities my friend matters in fact the reason why we don't measure them goes back in history and this is really hilarious so today governments use something called the general equilibrium general equilibrium model to measure their economies and the whole idea is that um, demand interacts with supply and that prices are set by demand and supply and that the composition of prices will be such that it gradually moves in the direction where people are optimizing their individual utilities. And that's basically a model that was created by um, someone called Leon Walras at the turn of the last century in 1905. Ironically, the reason he turned economics, which was really a social science into maths is because he was constantly seeking his father's attention. He was a younger brother. His elder brother was a physicist. So you can say that today's mathematical focus on economics has been born out of what I describe as physics envy by a mathematician called Leon Walras, who, by the way, applied for the Ecole Polytechnique and he couldn't get in. And he went to the School of Mines and he didn't do that well as an engineer. But he created this mathematical model of the economy, which, because of its simplicity and its necessary simplicity, ignores externalities. And that's the genesis of our problem. We don't manage what we need to measure. Externalities, as a result of that, have become huge. We are talking about 11, 12, 14 trillion dollars of externalities in an economy which is 90 trillion dollars. These are not small. And that's Pavan, yes. may I jump in? So yes. uh, you are talking about uh, accounting uh, externalities. And for sure, we are not doing it uh, properly in the oil and gas sector, but in the other sectors. I mean, uh, your huge experience, you are dealing with many sectors of the economy. Mm. Is mm. anybody doing that? No. So are Nobody there is any? This see. is a systemic and global problem, right? So the net result is whatever you are doing on ESG is essentially qualitative. It's basically judgmental. It is you are using environmental and social factors and you're rating them one, two, three, four, five. You're adding them up. You're adding up things which don't compare, right? Environmental, social fa uh, factors are drivers, uh, are, are impacts. Governance is a driver. You can't compare one with the other. Governance drives all of the other factors. So today's state of affairs is terrible. And time has come for us to start measuring impacts 
And the beauty is that with science and with economics together, it can be done. When we, whether it's my company, when we measure, if you could go to the, skip the next slide, which is basically showing you that, uh, the next slide shows you that lack of correlation that is happening, which is, by the way, any of the 600, if you compare, you will get the same level of lack of correlation. So this is not, I'm not criticizing MSCI or, or uh, Financial Times. They are all like that. Why? Because they are not measuring the impacts. We need to start measuring the impacts. You can't just keep adding up qualitative ratings and making them appear quantitative and then end up with a lack of understanding of corporate sustainability, which is about being plus, 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 plus. It's about being positive on human, natural, social, and obviously produced capital. Otherwise, you don't survive as a company. On my next slide, I illustrate how we can actually do it, which is to measure capital impacts. Capital is an economic... Uh, Capital is an economic metaphor for value, and you can actually measure this and value it. You can measure environmental impacts, natural capital externalities. You can measure human capital externalities, social capital externalities, and even financial value addition, which is the missing bits, financial impacts beyond profits. They are there in the balance sheet and profit and loss of a company, but we don't report them simply because nobody asks us to report them. Companies are not required to report impacts on society. They only are required to report impacts on shareholders. And my next slide, I give you the example of how it can be done. And this is a simple case, simple as in everyone understands air pollution, right? Factories generate pollution. This is a cement factory, cement company, by the way, 15 factories somewhere in Asia. I can't give the name because it's confidential. It's a client. So they, the, the way that we do it is to measure the dispersion of pollution coming from the chimneys. So essentially, the, the pollutants that are the most important ones are SOX, NOx, and PM2.5 and PM10 particles. And the diagram on the top right-hand side, shows where the pollution lands. How do we do this? Because we use the NASA global database of wind speeds and wind direction. We basically do our dispersion modeling. Yes, indeed, for all the physicists, we draw the Gaussian curves and plan it out, literally location by location, pollutant by pollutant. That's how it is done. This is how the correct way of measuring impacts of air pollution are. But So you know where the pollution lands. That's the diagram on the top right-hand side. But the point is you need to know how many people are, are breathing that pollution. For that, you need a global population map, which is one square kilometer by one square kilometer. And then once you've calculated the impacts, in other words, the, 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 the absorption by the receptors, the people, then you have to go to the WHO database, which tells you what is the likelihood of an increase in respiratory diseases and cardiovascular diseases as a result of those increases in SOX, NOx, PM2.5, and PM10. Disease by disease, there is a WHO database that does this. And then you go to the country level and you work out for that country concerned, what is the morbidity and the mortality cost, which means in economic terms, how much does it cost to cure these diseases if the statistical probability of them striking you happens? And how much is the loss of life cost in terms of the family will lose X number of years of productive life of the, of the mother or the father or the sister or the brother? What is the cost to that family of not having the breadwinner? bring in that income. So we calculate these things, and it's very sad to have to calculate statistical, uh, sorry, to, to calculate the, the cost of losing lives. But there is a statistical probability of air pollution leading to human deaths. In fact, it's one of the biggest drivers of, of uh, death uh, around the planet, apart from smoking and, and, and so on. So this is how calculations are done. These are ways of estimating the capital costs. In other words, the, hu the human capital costs of an environmental impact. And in the same way, we can calculate using massive uh, water security, uh, water scarcity data, which we've contained, uh, which we pulled together. We can calculate the costs of 
water usage and then water pollution and, and so on and so forth. And human capital, the positive side, the value of training and development of the employee and what it means in terms of the present value of the future incomes that are increased as a result of this year's company training and development of its employees. That's positive. Pavan, uh, I have a question from the please. audience. Yes, what do you think if this evaluation methodology would be applied uh, to the countries like Malaysia, Indonesia or India, how that would change our understanding of the whole picture? So I've got news for you. It is already being applied. Uh, the same logic that I have, the four capitals that I talked to you about, human, social, natural and produce capital. The United Nations has a report which has been published four times, oh, sorry, three times, 2012, 2014, and 2018, right? It's called the Inclusive Wealth Report. It's already available, but the problem is this. The policymakers are not listening because all they are looking at is GDP, GDP, GDP. They're looking only at GDP growth. So unfortunately, you know, the problem that I'm describing to you, which has got to be driven from the corporate sector, from the private sector, the same problem exists at the macro level as well. Macro performance is being mismeasured as well, not just not just micro level or, or private sector performance. And there is, there is, an, there, there is uh, an inclusive wealth account for Malaysia. It's there in the report of 2018. SPE is going virtual. Coming the 24th to the 26th of June, the SPE International Oilfield Scale Conference and Exhibition will be a 100% online event. You'll enjoy a high quality, peer-reviewed technical program networking opportunities, and an exhibition center. Join us in keeping our communities connected during this challenging time. Register today and access the event live from anywhere around the globe. Search SPE Oilfield Scale in your web browser or click the link in the show notes of this episode. From our home office to yours, hope to see you there. Now let's move inside the industry. And I'm happy to give the floor to my colleague, Antoine Huff, Senior Scholar at Columbia University Center in global, on Global Energy Policy and also Chief Analyst and Founding Partner of Kairos, a technology-focused Earth Observation Analytics firm. Antoine, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Tatiana. Thank you, Johanna, for the invitation to speak. I'm, I'm really excited and also humbled to, to share the stage with uh, such great speakers and, and people who make such a big impact on the, the issues that we, we care about. Uh, the, the, the purpose uh, of uh, what we do at, uh, at Kairos is very much in line with the uh, objective of uh, the Kairos. So uh, I've been you know, spending most of my professional life uh, doing oil market analysis, energy market analysis, and one of the key challenges that the industry has faced has always been the lack of reliable, timely, comprehensive data. Uh, this is particularly true when it comes to the climate uh, footprint of, of the of the industry. Uh, for a very long time, uh, we've been relying on self-reporting by companies, and and oftentimes self-reporting based on untested assumptions about uh, from from engineers about the climate intensity of various processes. We're now moving to a very different world, where technology is is mature, is being is available to measure the, uh, the, the climate impact of the oil and gas industry in very concrete, precise, reliable, uh, and timely ways. And this is, I think, a, a complete game changer. So uh, maybe we can move on to, I think I have a few slides and I think some of them may be 
so if we move to the next one, uh, our company Kairos uh, has developed uh, algorithms that extract information from existing satellites, specifically from uh, uh, Sentinel 5P uh, from the European Space Agency that provide very specific, uh, reliable measurements on major emissions around the world. So this is good news and bad news. Uh, let me start with the bad news. The bad news is that based on our measurements, there's a lot more methane emissions in the world than we suspected. There's a lot more fugitive methane emissions out there, major events uh, than were accounted for using uh, engineered estimates based on, on assumptions about the carbon intensity of the energy industry. Uh, we've run uh, measurements uh, on a daily basis for the last couple of years. And looking at uh, just last year, on average, we detected about 100 major emissions a day around the world. Uh, this is a, 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 a rough map of where these measurements have been detected, where the detections have been made. Uh, they cover the entire map. Uh, they cover uh, the oil and gas industry as well as other industries like the coal industry. Uh, this is mostly uh, as far as the oil and gas industry upstream, a bit midstream. Uh, and of these 100 events a day, about 50%, about half, can be attributed to regions that are oil and gas producers and to, to the oil and gas industry. So the detections that we've measured uh, are all above 10 hours of methane an hour. And that translates roughly into uh, 20 megatons of methane a year or uh, 1.8 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent a year, of which about half can be traced to the, to the oil and gas industry. The map is still a work in progress. The technology is mature. The application of the te technology and the translation of the technology into detailed measurements case by case is still a work in progress. There's still areas of the map that we don't cover as comprehensively as the others. And there's some areas where there are some false positives that we are stripping out, we're, we're eliminating, uh, filtering out from our assessment. But the assessments, generally speaking, is quite, quite, uh, quite uh, remarkable. It's bad news because it means the footprint of the industry is much larger than anybody suspected. Uh, it's good news because this opens the door for uh, fixing the problem, for remediation, and for improvements. And it's doing it in three ways. It's really uh, allowing industry to improve its operations and reduce its footprint. It's enabling uh, uh, policymakers to design policies that really move the needle, uh, that have an impact. Uh, and it's enabling uh, the allocation of investment to where it matters, to where it has an impact on the carbon footprint. It's enabling investors to reconcile the goal for energy and the goal for climate uh, uh, stewardship. So let me take a couple of examples on the next slide. Uh, here we have uh, a look, uh, if we can see the next slide, I'm not sure. Uh, we, we tracked, um, detection in Algeria, in the Saharan desert uh, in, uh, in January of this year, we detected three major emissions in early January at three different locations in Algeria. 
Uh, and here we uh, have a picture of one of these detections that we've uh, measured using a, a dispersion model uh, to about 80 tons per hour. And we've uh, also designed the algorithms and the technology to trace this event to its source. On the next slide, uh, we've identified where the, the source is and we've identified in that area a number of wells and facilities that could potentially have been leaking. The next stage in our uh, uh, determination process has been to try to select among these wells, among these potential sources of the leak, the one specific area that was most likely responsible for the event. And the next slide, we've done so uh, by uh, combining different technologies, combining readings from Sentinel-5P to uh, readings from uh, other uh, satellites, shortwave um, infrared uh, readings from Sentinel-2. And we've basically identified in this case a well that emitted uh, uh, methane, uh, that vented methane for about eight days in January, from January 1, 1st to January 8th, and then stopped emitting methane, stopped venting, but went into clearing. Uh, and here, just when the detection of the vented methane stopped uh, on Sentinel-5P, uh, we started to pick up signs of uh, methane flaring from the same location, uh, from, from one particular location that we then identify as being the one source. So this is a significant event. This was about 80 tons of, uh, of, of uh, methane an hour. So a major source of emission equivalent to several uh, large coal-fired power plants. Uh, there's many other cases that we've looked into. On the next slide, I have a very brief summary of some of them, uh, including an event in uh, the Permian Basin in December of last year that we've traced to a particular source using a different mix of technologies. Uh, we've identified events in Turkmenistan, uh, no surprise there, I guess, in the Shatlik gas field. In Russia, we've picked up major emissions in September 2019 from uh, areas along the Yamal pipeline, and we've identified particularly a natural gas compressor station that was responsible for large emissions of about uh, 20 uh, tons per hour. In Australia, we've picked up uh, emissions from a coal mine. So uh, I'm happy to go into more detail into the various technologies, the various methodologies that we've applied to these particular cases. But the key message I want to, to focus on, and I want to, to keep my remarks very brief, is really that uh, uh, the technologies today are game changer. Uh, and, and this is a, a work in progress. We're not the only ones developing new technologies. Uh, others in the field are developing new instruments, launching new satellites that will advance, I think, our visibility on the industry tremendously. But already today, using existing technology, existing satellites, we can really uh, help the industry uh, improve its operations. We can uh, help policymakers design the right policies. We can help the investment community develop more robust uh, ESG uh, methodologies and very much in like with what Pavan was saying. We can really improve the E component of the ESG standards and, and come up with very, very reliable, very robust measurements of, of methane. Uh, so I think this is 
really uh, important. And the the three uh, particularly uh, particularly key uh, characteristics of these technologies are, are, are threefold. Uh, independence. It's very important for industry to not simply report its own emissions, but rely on independent third-party measurements. Nobody can trust any particular oil and gas company in what they disclose about the measurements. It's very good to measure. And a lot of companies have announced calls to, to disclose their methane footprint, their carbon footprint, and to, to come clean and lift the kimono on their operations. But nobody will trust necessarily what company X or Y or Z is saying about their own measurements because uh, of uh, uh, lessons learned from the Volkswagen scandal, for example, Dieselgate uh, or, or other incidents. Uh, it's very important to be comprehensive and the satellite detection is, is particularly useful because it's global. Uh, it's not just detected to areas that are already suspected of being a source of emissions. It spans the entire world and looks for emissions when we don't, where we don't necessarily expect them. Uh, we've picked up, for example, large emissions in Bangladesh, not a big producer of oil and gas, not a big consumer of oil and gas, but a large source of emissions from leaking pipelines that are really uh, either out of, uh, of, of shape, out of maintenance, or that have been uh, used for pilfering by uh, uh, the population. Uh, and, and finally, it's real time. So uh, it really enables quick action, quick remediation. Whenever an incident is detected, uh, it opens the door for quick uh, corrective measures and, and, and mitigation. So the technology today uh, is here, is mature, is constantly improving, but is already enabling the industry to reconcile the goal of responsible climate uh, stewardship and energy development, and producing the energy that we need to sustain economic growth and to provide energy access to those that still need uh, energy. SPE is proud to co-sponsor the Energy and Data webinar series. Engage and connect with the energy and data community from anywhere in the world by participating in our monthly webinars. On the 25th of June, join Sunli Garg as he discusses update structural models in real time using machine learning. On the 30th of July, tune in with Sashi Gunturu and learn about subsurface data engineering. Both webinars will begin at 8 a.m. Central Time. Join us for this great learning experience. Visit energyanddata.org to register now. The data and energy webinars are powered by AAPG, SEG, and SPE. Uh, let's move uh, to uh, Vanessa Miller-Fels, uh, who is a part of Microsoft's Seller Environmental Sustainability Team and serves as Director of Energy Innovation and Impact. Vanessa, please. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Tatiana, for having me. Uh, first, it's a, an honor to be on, on this panel, and I'm really humbled to join you and uh, also my esteemed fellow panelists. Uh, we've had a fantastic introduction by Pavan and, and also uh, amazing work done by Antoine uh, and Keros. This is certainly something we're also uh, very interested in. As, as Antoine kind of teed it up, there's a lot of data that's being analyzed, and so it's a, we see it a, as a an exciting opportunity um, for a technology company like Microsoft. And I'm particularly excited to join this talk, uh, Gaia Talk, because it's a great name. One of my favorite books about climate change is called Facing Gaia by French philosopher Bruno Latour. Um, so it's it's a particular honor. And um, so in January, we launched, uh, Microsoft launched a carbon initiative 
setting new goals for our company to become carbon negative by 2030. And I think I'll touch upon kind of some of the issues we faced and we are facing as we want to kind of first assess uh, the challenge and then address the challenge. So to guide our sustainability journey, we've developed kind of a, a few principles. Uh, and I focus on three of the main principles. First principle, and it will echo very much what you've talked about, is put the data uh, and the digital technology to work. And simply stated, what we can't, uh, we can't solve a problem that we don't fully understand. Second principle is tech responsibility for our carbon footprint. Uh, and the third principle is empower others, partners and customers and policymakers around the world to assess and address their own carbon footprint. And we hope to kind of take some of the lessons we uh, are learning from our own kind of exercise in addressing and abating our carbon footprint. Um, you can go to the next slide. So I think there was a good question that was, uh, that was raised earlier with Antoine is how can we use some of the technology uh, like the one uh, Keros developed for methane tracking uh, to assess the biodiversity and the, the, the kind of the, the situation for the fauna and flora of the world. And this resonates very well with something we've, we've an effort we've just kind of undertaken and announced uh, for on Earth Day uh, this year, so about a month ago, um, and what we call the planetary computer. This effort of building a planetary computer is really to try to address this question of how do we get better at understanding the problem? Um, this is a computing endeavor, not surprising for Microsoft, but the goal is really to aggregate global environmental data that's collected from a number of sources and to employ machine learning and other techniques, other kind of artificial intelligence techniques to better understand the challenges faced in the planetary health. We hope that this planetary computer will provide answers not only to Microsoft, but also to our customers, but even more broadly to the scientific community that's about to plan um, uh, sustainability and how we address sustainability. So what is this com planetary computer kind of capable of doing? Kind of what would be a good example? Well, I think, um, you know, what, what Keros does could certainly maybe fit in that, but we've been focused, for example, on how machine learning, satellite imagery, user source data ar around the world uh, and in real time can help us assess, for example, on the ground forest covers and how that can be used for industrial construction, site surveys, or for forest preservation efforts. Um, so we're really like, I think this, this measuring matters is very much at the core of this planetary computer. Assessing the planet's Earth must become a more sustained integrated practice that allows us to understand exactly what is happening in real time to enable smart decision making. For us, it really is captured in this kind of uh, simple sentence, but it should be as easy for anyone in the world to search the state of the planet as it is to search the internet. And this planetary computer is kind of an ongoing development. Uh, and I'll, I'll kind of talk also a little bit to its genesis. But I think it really resonates very well with some of the policymakers effort we've seen, um, particularly in Europe, but hopefully globally. The um, EU announced, I think earlier this year, a Mission Hearth initiative. And this Mission Hearth initiative is to improve 
disaster response and preparedness. And it's, I think the goal is to bring also together the best scientific and ex industrial expertise to improve the earth modeling, kind of building almost a digital model of uh, planet earth, kind of a digital tween. Uh, so we hope this, we can really partner on building this planetary computer. What's kind of the genesis of the planetary computer? And we can go to the next slide. It's an evolution of a Microsoft program that was called AI for Earth that we launched in 2017. The Microsoft AI for Earth was putting uh, AI technology and machine learning technology into the hands of leading ecologists, conservation technologists, and organizations around the world uh, that are working to, to protect our planet. Um, we focused on these four pillars that are indicated here, agriculture, water, biodiversity, climate change. And under climate change, certainly uh, engagement with uh, the energy industry uh, is uh, fits uh, pretty nicely. But I wanted to kind of have maybe a, uh, an example that um, anybody uh, can, can use. And also as we're all working from home and many of us have kids in the background, um, I thought this, this example of uh, a company or not really a company, an NGO we supported, um, it would, would be a, a fun one to share. So we can go to the next slide. It's called iNaturalist and it's a social media platform, uh, and it enables basically people to identify the fauna and the flora that surrounds them that they see anywhere in the world. And it uses AI to kind of uh, identify the species and improve our understanding of the species. So when you're an amateur kind of eye naturalist user and you discover a new species, um, you can uh, document it and register it. And so there's, through iNaturalist, we've really discovered kind of undocumented behavior and photographed organism that are previously maybe not even being sketched or only being sketched like you know, 300 years ago in one of Captain Scoop's uh, expedition. We're using AI algorithm to be able to upload the picture, to uh, analyze the picture and basically map kind of the fauna and flora in a much more, in a richer and much more granular way. Today, we estimate that there's 10 million species in the world, but only 1.8 million have been discovered and just 90,000 have been analyzed. So there's plenty of scope for getting involved. And so really this is the one, you know, you can just put in the hands of, of yourself and your kids uh, as, as you're trying to occupy themselves in these COVID-19 days. Um, how does this kind of relate to the energy sector? We can go to the next slide. I think this effort to, to get and put better data at work is also one of the key enablers of the energy transition. You're all familiar uh, in the energy sector with the three Ds, decarbonization, decentralization, and digitization. Um, and, uh, I think this is where we're really interested in how can digitization contribute to the, not only be an enabler, but potentially be an accelerator of the decarbonization. And again, I'll, I'll just turn to the EU that seems to be sometimes at the forefront of a lot of these issues. Uh, but the EU has been really thinking about the link between digitization and decarbonization. And they published uh, a paper earlier this year that kind of really tees up this vision where digital technologies 
can help Europe reduce more CO2 emissions than it emits. Um, and and I, this is really what we're trying to figure out is how do we build technology that will um, help ourselves, like uh, address the carbon emissions and other GIG um, emissions within our four walls or within Microsoft operations, but also address emissions uh, outside of our four walls. And, and um, we can go to the next slide that really kind of talks about how important outside of our four walls and kind of having this conversation with the outside um, community is important for Microsoft. Uh, because when we, tr when we announced this, this uh, we called it a moonshot, uh, carbon negative commitment by 2030. We're one of the few companies to have had a, a carbon negative commitment. Um, we have had to measure our carbon emission and our other gas emissions. Um, and going back to Pavan and, and Antoine, we have to figure out the tools uh, and, and the ways that we can be accountable uh, for these carbon emissions that we're reporting. And initially we reported scope one and scope two. Now we've included scope three, which basically relates to our, what we call downstream and upstream emissions. So the emissions of the products we sell and the emissions of, um, uh, that comes in, uh, uh, from our supply chain. To be able to assess scope three emission is particularly challenging. Um, it's challenging for Microsoft and it's maybe even more challenging for the oil and gas sector. Um, there's reports that says that the oil and gas sector, um, scope, their scope three accounts for 90% of their emissions. And so being able to create the tools and having that conversation around what, the, what are the appropriate tools to measure carbon emissions and other uh, gas emissions is, is uh, very critical for us and, and will continue to be a, uh, a main um, focus. Um, so and actually, uh, Vanessa, before moving forward, I have a question which corresponds very well to what you are uh, speaking about. Uh, Dakota is asking, what is Microsoft doing internally to create a culture of sustainability within the company? And how could that be transferred to the oil and gas industry? That's a very good question. Um, I think our employee are very core to our uh, carbon strategy. Um, very much so. In fact, it's it's one of the four pillars when we think about okay, what are the actions of our operation? And, and I mentioned the customers and the partners. Uh, the employees are, are are one critical pillar. We have a very active uh, worldwide sustainability community that has more than twenty six hundred um, active members, uh, and we have um, kind of an open dialogue with not only this this active. Uh, members, but also the broader employee in terms of how do we engage them and how do we uh, work with them and, and almost kind of crowdsource some ideas or, you know, um, benefit from their network to be able to, to be more successful. Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, em employees is a critical part of, of changing um, your, your sustainability uh, or building your sustainability vision. Um, and I mean, to be frank, some initiatives have been led by employees and continue, will continue to be led by employees or letters to shareholders or, you know, so that, that continue to be part of this uh, ongoing dialogue. 
That's a great example for us as well. Uh, two more questions, if you do not mind. Uh, Inna is asking how the data taken and worked out by the satellite measurements could be verified, proved in case the country or the region or the company polluter rejected or claimed invalid. Uh, is there any international mechanism? Uh, so when when we're using like a satellite data and how would if a, if a country or a company doesn't think it's an appropriate data or it's invalid, how what would be the mechanism to be able to track it? I think we haven't figured it out yet, to be frank. Um, the idea is any problem has multi-dimension and the beauty of a planetary computer or any kind of you know data platform and machine learning platform is that you can integrate and you can ingest much more um, data and much more dimensions of data than the human mind, than, you know, I could be able to process just looking at an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, and so that's hopefully with having that, uh, with having that multi-dimension um, aspect, we're able to kind of neutralize better uh, the, the data points that are, that, you know, that we don't trust. Um, but this is certainly something that, is very core to, to Microsoft to build trust on the data and the analysis that data provides. Uh, and, and I mean, I didn't go through kind of some of the principles that we have for AI engagement, for artificial AI engagement, uh, but trust is a, is a critical one and fairness and, and, a, and a few others. Um, so uh, definitely an ongoing question, I think, for all of us here. I see. By the way, on AI, uh, is it applicable for empowering smart uh, conservation actions, such as to create habitat maps for endangered species? This is crucial in big oil field development plan and execution that often require massive di displacement uh, of organisms from natural habitats. It's a question from Vanessa. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think this is certainly uh, an application that would you know, what would be very interested in in uh, in solving with the appropriate partners. I mean, I I'm I would imagine we have things like that in our AI for Earth um, at this point, and I can't point to any specific uh, uh, work uh, right now, but um, not apply to oil and gas specifically. So I think it would be great to kind of see how we apply it to specific industries and how we enable specific industries to use some of um, these uh, these technologies to help them better site, uh, to help them better manage uh, or rebuild kind of the um, the habitats of the fauna uh, that they've, they've, they otherwise would endanger. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Much of the work of the Society of Petroleum Engineers is accomplished by members. Become a volunteer and use your knowledge and experience to influence SPE programs and activities. As a volunteer, you can enhance your leadership skills while meeting and working with other SPE members from across the globe. There are many opportunities to get involved, regardless of your experience, location, or experience level. To learn more about the League of Volunteers, visit spe.org volunteer. 
let's move forward again uh, back inside the industrial expertise uh, and I would happy to give the floor to Poppy Kalesi, Global Energy Director, Environmental Defense Fund. Poppy is also leading EDF's energy program in Europe with a focus on deep reductions in global oil and gas methane emissions by 2025. So Poppy, please. Uh, thank you very much uh, for organizing this global conversation. Um, it is really, really heartening to see the level of engagement and the access that this community has to global resources and expertise. Uh, and it is particularly heartening to see the engagement of operational um, engineers in, in really solving the problem. I, I will be very brief um, and, and really reflecting on what we heard today. Um, one thing that becomes clear is that increased transparency enabled by technology is really intensifying demands for disclosure. But that being said, not all data is equal. In, in the area of methane emissions, uh, particularly, both investors and, and regulators are, are really pushing uh, and, and demand more verifiable data. So as Antoine mentioned before, the Volkswagen case has really woken up regulators, investors, and civil society, um, especially in jurisdictions like Europe. And, and where we are now in the conversation is that non-financial data, such as methane emissions, is increasingly financially material for both regulators and, and investors. Some in the industry have responded by committing to a net zero vision as a core part of their corporate strategy. Most of these announcements have been, of course, met with um, both support and, and, and also some skepticism. So, so many of the companies who have committed to net zero visions have now learned that even though this is a good step forward, without transparency, it is very far from enough. Members of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, who have made a commitment to achieve 0.25% methane intensity by 2025, are increasingly asked to credibly demonstrate that they're delivering on what they said they would deliver. So roadmaps and strategic commitments are, are no longer enough. Stakeholders, especially among civil society, regulators, investors, really are are needing to see investment in, in real dollars, in concrete projects. And importantly, there is a, an increasing um, and more urgent demand for verified emissions performance. This is now the new normal. So verifiable data will be the key differentiator between companies in, in two respects. The one of them is market performance, and the other one is the license to operate. The latter increasingly includes market access. So this means that two of the industry's main customers, governments and investors, will increasingly be asking your commercial colleagues to provide assurances of your company's ESG performance with the same diligence and transparency as they do for financial data. And your commercial colleagues will be coming to you for this information. Unlike dollars and financial metrics, emissions performance and project spending and execution is not something that a commercial person can readily ac access on, on their screen. So this new normal, um, in terms of internal collaboration, this, this will require 
a completely different scale of internal collaboration across disciplines and business areas at, at a scale never experienced before. And, and the reason why we believe this will this will actually happen internally is that it will start to have financial consequences. It will be material. So EU leaders are, are increasingly basing their decisions on whether to provide financial support to companies hit by the COVID virus, depending on companies' alignment with the European Green Deal framework, which targets climate neutrality by 2050. Poppy, so, uh, may I ask you a question on this trust and verification? Uh, it's really a very important issue, but uh, do you think, I mean, at least uh, on the EU scale, should it be one organization which is providing this verification or should it be a network of certified organizations? How do you think it could be organized? So I know there are conversations uh, which are now at a, at a fairly advanced stage uh, to establish what will hopefully be a global methane observatory, uh, which will be hosted by UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme. As I know from, from connecting with uh, startups and, and industry kind of uh, partners in Europe on a daily basis now, um, there is a huge interest in developing a market for, for such uh, verification services. So while the jury is still out, I do think uh, that this organization, whatever that is, which will need to reconcile the top-down and the bottom-up measurements and, and really verify that what companies report really is true, I think this will require a public-private partnership. And I, I do think that because emissions is a public good, I do think that a public entity should supervise this organization. But of course, to deliver on its mission, it really does need the engagement and the collaboration with the resources in the industry. So public and private sector will have to work in a way that they never have before. Thank you so much, Poppy. Are you considering becoming an SPE member? When you join SPE, you join a society of dedicated professionals just like you, working to address the technical challenges of the global oil and gas industry. SPE membership gives you the opportunity to make local and global connections and build a network of influential technical leaders from every discipline. Learn more at spe.org join. Thank together with me, all our panel participants. I think it was extremely interesting and useful. Thank you so much. 